You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our TC podcast. I'm Ilana Singer, Chair of the Toronto Centre Securities Advisory Board, and today we will be discussing various initiatives that Kenya has undertaken in the areas of climate change and sustainable development. There have been numerous international movements to promote sustainable development and climate change, including Agenda 2030 by the United Nations, Agenda 2063 by the African Union, and the Marrakesh Pledge by 19 signatories representing 23 African countries. Kenya has been leading the way through various initiatives of its own. We have the pleasure today of hearing from Mr. Paul Mathura, who is the Chief Executive of the Capital Markets Authority of Kenya. Paul is a member of the IOSCO Board and the Chairman of the IOSCO Africa and Middle East Regional Committee. He is also the Chairman of the Consultative Committee of the East African Securities Regulatory Authorities. At the national level, he sits on the boards of the Insurance and Pensions Regulator, as well as the Vision 2030 Delivery Board. A very warm welcome to you, Paul. Thank you for having me, Alana. It's our absolute pleasure. So to start this podcast, can you tell us, Paul, about the responses you've seen in the African financial markets to the Sustainable Development Goals? Uh, Thank you, Alana. I think when we look at Africa's responses, um, we have to contextualize that with the realization that uh, for a very large part, Africa is likely to be the continent that's be the most affected by climate change and related factors. When you overlay that um, Africa also has the youngest demographic um, in the world, then in terms of the long-term sustainability factors, uh, the continent is looking very critically at these issues. Um, as you mentioned, at the core of that is the steps that the African Union has put in place uh, with its Agenda 2063, looking at really um, fundamentally trying to address sustainability issues and then going on to identify the core role that capital markets need to play in ensuring that we are able to deliver that sustainability. As you also mentioned, following the um, COP22 Conference of Parties in uh, November 2016, Kenya was very pleased to be one of the first signatories to what is known as the Marrakesh Pledge, which sets down uh, really the ambition for the securities regulators, as well as securities exchanges on the continent, to work towards building a conducive environment for green finance, and ultimately to identify mechanisms to promote the use of capital markets financing to support sustainability overall. Thank you, Paul. What you've said about Africa being the most affected 
region of the world, and also uh, what you have described in terms of the demographic being the youngest is, I'm sure, both an interesting and not necessarily new, but valuable fact for our listeners. And so moving on to how these responses have aligned with the recent growth in green finance, can you comment on that, Paul? First and foremost, um, the African Development Bank, in its work of analyzing the um, funding needs for the continent, has put a, a number of approximately 20 to $30 billion per annum running to the year 2030. That would be necessary to support um, appropriate steps um, on the continent to address uh, climate change. In addition to that, and I, I think even um, in pers- pursuant to that, um, you, you did have those critical steps being taken by the securities exchanges as well as capital markets authorities on the continent to sign up to um, the Marrakesh Pledge to now start working at the looking at the fundamentals of how we're putting in place legal frameworks as well as institutional arrangements and more critically um, the uh, capacity building and awareness programs across different market participants to make sure that we can really achieve the true potential um, of our markets and overall deliver um, that um, aspire to 20 to 30 billion dollar raise, um, whether it's on the continent or um, really using appropriate environments on the continent to crowd in uh, global funding to support those uh, climate change initiatives. Paul, what you described in terms of the financial requirements to adapt to climate change are quite large, um, both at a sort of micro and a macro level. And in terms of the commitment of regulators and exchanges to the Marrakesh Pledge, I personally find that very encouraging. Now, the responses, as I said, both from exchanges, from regulators, uh, from the capital markets, they're interesting and encouraging. And in your view, what makes the capital markets a better or a different form of financing for these projects compared to options that we have seen in the past? When you look at the continent, um, I think for a very long time, there's been a very significant reliance on either um, donor-structured funding or uh, government-to-government related funding. Now, the capital markets really provide that alternative opportunity to raise long-term transparent financing um, that that would be able to support uh, really the long-term funding needs um, of the sustainable uh, evolution, development, transformation of the African continent. When you look at now the evolving um, expectations that are coming from also many of these donor agencies now being under much greater pressure to show some kind of return on the funding they're putting in um, to these projects and the evolution of blended finance. We see um, capital markets playing a very critical role in really providing the tools and the structures that will allow donor funding to start crowding in larger pools of private sector funding that can go into um, whether it is uh, commercially viable or merely socially impactful projects uh, that can nonetheless deliver the ultimate returns that are being looked for in terms of principle-based or sustainable-based financing initiatives. 
Picking up on the theme of capital markets, I would like to focus in on the capital markets in Kenya. Who are some of the key players in Kenya that you believe, Paul, are best equipped to mobilize capital markets as a vehicle for the SDG agenda, including, for example, supervisors and regulators? The first um, really recognition is um, it, it really does need a, a multi-sectoral spread of players to be able to deliver the ultimate goals. Um, at the core of that are, um, I think, the strong steps and the commitment that the government of Kenya has shown with, on the one side, the National Treasury uh, working to support the alignment of funding structures within the country to um, existing policy statements around green finance, uh, supporting the blue economy, and overall looking at uh, sustainability in the country. Uh, Taking a step down um, at the market level, we have had the Nairobi Securities Exchange, which is uh, the only exchange operating in Kenya, but also one of the the oldest exchanges on the continent taking a very central role in then looking at how it can support the evolution of appropriate products and working very much in partnership with the Capital Markets Authority, where we actually carry a dual mandate of both market development as well as market regulation. Um, So it really calls upon us to work much more proactively and um, with an effective interface with industry on how we can support the long-term deepening um, and growing of the markets. Now, despite this being a capital markets-focused issue, um, we do have to look to who will be the issuers. And we've had the Kenya Bankers Association as being really one of the first champions, working with first building uh, deeper appreciation for sustainability and uh, principle-based investments by the banking community, and then now taking steps towards uh, really bringing together all the key parties to look at how do you actually work, uh, you know, develop a roadmap to the actual issuance of a product um, that can serve as a pilot and start incentivizing others to start following in that track record. Ultimately, um, in Kenya, we're conscious that we are not an island. And so the work we're doing has to be appropriately informed and aligned with what's happening globally. And we've had excellent support uh, from teams from uh, Financial Sector Deepening Africa, the International Finance Corporation, um, Dutch FMO, um, as well as the Climate Bonds Initiative, who have been able to really help contextualize what are the global trends then help us translate those into some of the realities of what we're trying to achieve in terms of market structure and market realities in Kenya to make sure that we could have a viable product. Paul, what I found very interesting about your recent description was how in terms of the um, evolution of this space in Kenya, there has really been a lot of support at the governmental level, regulatory level, industry, and now moving into international and, you know, really global players helping to develop this. Um, What kind of advice could you give to emerging markets or even developed markets around the world to have governments and other players in the space take that kind of a lead role? 
I think what we've realized in the process is uh, to be able to move to a point of success, you need to have very strong ownership. Uh, in, in jurisdictions where, um, for example, it is almost purely uh, donor or international agency driven, um, uh, we tend to find even in our engagements with colleagues that um, between visits, between missions, nothing happens because it is seen to be someone else's initiative, not really aligned to local realities and local needs. Um, so in Kenya, having the benefit of one, a very clear um, economic, political, um, social plan for the country, which is structures the Vision 2030. You then have very clear policy statements being made by you know, the Ministry of Environment, um, the, uh, the approaches that even uh, ministries uh, for natural resources are taking, um, the policy that the National Treasury is putting in place, it's all linked to the achievement of an underlying national aspiration. So when we then started reaching out um, to industry, one industry understands the context in which they're operating in and really the ultimate goal that we're all working towards. And then in partnering with um, development partners, uh, the context of the national ambition is really the key driver in the kind of advice and the kind of direction that's being given. It really helps uh, manage the, the, the inclination to just cut and paste and say, it worked elsewhere, why don't you do the same thing? Uh, because and, and it comes out very strongly even in our work at IOSCO, that... Um, Every market is fundamentally different. Um, although the issues and challenges being addressed are very, very similar, the solutions that will work um, really do vary depending on really the realities, the macroeconomic environment, the policy environment, and even the strength of the, the balance between industry and government in how decisions are made in any jurisdiction. So we've found that having that kind of firm foundation of the national aspiration, then guiding all other matters has helped the work be very consistent and um, milestones uh, much more achievable. Paul, I found that very inspiring in terms of describing how in Kenya, it sounds like you have a real true north at the national level uh, to which all initiatives and in this particular area for example, aspire to, and therefore there is a clear roadmap, clear path to get to where the country needs to get to. And I think that's quite helpful, encouraging, and inspiring to other jurisdictions who are trying to uh, take the same kinds of um, initiatives in their own ways. So picking up on that theme, and as you lead and take part in these initiatives, you've already talked about the tool of having this you know, national roadmap and this national, uh, these national goals. Are there other tools that you have found to be particularly effective in Kenya? I think one, going back to your point around the value proposition of a kind of a, a structured national uh, direction, um, even at capital markets level. Now, looking at the national aspirations to deliver the Vision 2030, we then um, designed what's known as the Capital Markets 10-Year Master Plan. 
which was now fundament, fundamentally looking at what are what's the role that the markets need to play in the delivery of that um, economic blueprint and really drilling down into looking at issues around market relevance and structure, looking at uh, available products and market infrastructure, looking at even how Kenya is interconnected into regional and international markets, and the role that both the regulator, relevant oversight institutions, as well as industry needed to play in achieving those goals really then uh, provided uh, an additional layer of context for this work. Now, when we look at the overall global shift towards um, ESG and sustainability uh, reporting, uh, we were able to put in place a new code of corporate governance, which has then now placed a priority in improving um, issuer disclosure around ESG factors. And although not mandating, encouraging issuers start moving the direction of integrated reporting. So in that kind of a context, then the conversations around sustainability and green finance were very well founded, that it wasn't kind of coming from left field, that what's this new product and new direction you wanted to move in. Now, being very cognizant that, um, in, as is the case in many emerging markets, uh, rulemaking and lawmaking particularly can be a very um, lengthy process. Uh, even the process of um, aligning parliamentarians um, with necessary decision-making. We opted, uh, in order to fast-track this, to support a, a much more guideline-focused approach uh, that would allow um, the industry through the uh, Nairobi Securities Exchange to develop green guidelines that could then be approved by the regulator as opposed to, for example, writing a new regulation around green finance. Now, as we were going through that process, and um, I think as we we're finalizing the um, NSC green guidelines, there was also a clear um, kind of stakeholder feedback that when you look at green finance, um, it can't purely be a listed market. Um, There's also a broad spectrum of unlisted products um, that have an opportunity to add value. So as the regulator, we then really exercise some of our principle-based approval powers to roll out now a very complementary set of uh, policy guidance notes on how unlisted uh, green securities um, could be approved even if they're not being um, listed. So we now have a complementary framework, one in the hands of the regulator for unlisted securities and then for listed. It was approved by the regulator but for the Nairobi Securities Exchange for the listing um, of uh, these green, green bonds particularly. An important additional layer we introduced, I think, following our engagement with the Climate Bonds Initiative, was identifying the the key role of uh, what are known as independent verifiers. That in a world where um, greenwashing is a very real concern, uh, we wanted to make sure that as we implement this in Kenya, we would be able to give relative assurance um, to investors that the principles 
against which this money was raised is also going to inform how this money is going to be deployed. And having an independent verifier to one, take responsibility for assessing the greenness of the proposed project and then doing continuous evaluation and reporting on how the funds raised are being deployed adds um, a, a very necessary layer of um, confidence to investors that uh, a green product in Kenya is green and is truly green and will remain green through the life of that product. Paul, that was a very helpful discussion about how in a, in a practical way, uh, your authority under your leadership was able to take um, a pragmatic approach to the issue of regulation and supervision in this area. In other words, not necessarily needing to put requirements in place, but having guidelines that the exchange then had approved by you in the listed area, and then in the unlisted area to put um, what I believe are guidelines in place or guidelines that you know your authority would have um, created. And so I think that's a very pragmatic way of looking at being able to put in place in a fairly quick, efficient way, guidelines that the market is asking for and that regulators and supervisors need in order to make sure that the market is operating properly, but that otherwise, in, a, in another way, as you said, sometimes lawmaking, you know, statutes, et cetera, that could take a much longer time. And so I think both I and our listeners certainly applaud that, that great pragmatism that was employed in this um, instance. Now, switching gears and looking at this issue as a global one, uh, rather than focusing exclusively on um, one country, although we have talked about global donors and you know looking at it um, from a larger perspective as well, including IOSCO, how do you think that we can achieve greater international collaboration and harmonization of standards in the green bond market as regulators, supervisors, and beyond? Well, I think the first thing is uh, building greater convergence around the reality of climate change. Um, I think as it stands, um, we're, we're not all on the same page uh, as to the reality of that. And it does have a very direct impact on how promptly and effectively we're able to put in place um, cross-border policy and rules in place if we're, we do, we're not in agreement that this is an issue that needs to be addressed. Um, but that said, for a long time, um, there were there was a significant proliferation of um, sustainability reporting standards and disclosure arrangements that was creating a bit of confusion in the world, that different bodies um, were building somewhat aligned, but still quite distinct. Um, frameworks as to how you report, how you assess, how you determine what's sustainable. Um, so there was a call on IOSCO to take steps to give some kind of, um, to lead that global convergence. Now, for the reasons mentioned that at a national policy level, um, not all uh, members of IOSCO were in concurrence. Um, that did create some delay. But in the last year, I think uh, we've had very positive steps taken both at the level of the IOSCO board, 
with the establishment of what's known as the Sustainable Finance Network, and then now at the Growth and Emerging Markets Committee, where uh, in 2017, we adopted um, a new work stream around trying to give members some kind of guidance on how they can build much more consistent and convergent uh, green finance uh, frameworks in their countries. I'm very glad to note that um, at the Growth and Emerging Markets Committee meeting just yesterday, we had very extensive discussions around the the final report of the GEM Committee around um, its sustainability finance recommendations. And there are very strong indications that the 10 key recommendations that have been put forward are going to be adopted um, by the end of this month, I think, which is a very significant coup. I think particularly for the emerging markets, uh, being conscious that they're the ones who will likely um, face the largest impact from climate change, um, to have led this work um, where uh, challenges were being faced by some of the larger developed economies, I think was a very positive step. And uh, that work can now significantly inform some of the deliberations and uh, hopefully uh, recommendations that will come from the board level uh, sustainable finance network. Congratulations, Paul. That is a very big accomplishment. And it sounds like under your leadership, the Growth and Emerging Markets Committee will really be able to influence the work, not only of its members, but also of IOSCO members as a whole, thereby, you know, influencing capital markets worldwide in this area. And I really applaud you and your leadership and your vision on this, because having been involved in IOSCO work in the past, I know it is no small feat to come to a resolution on recommendations. And this is an area that is, as you said earlier, not one where everyone is starting at the same place. So to come to an agreement with uh, concrete recommendations um, is really laudable. Congratulations. And so the timing of this podcast could not be any better. Uh, Most certainly. um, But it is critical to clarify that at least the GEM work was not under my leadership. I I, I happily assisted. Um, but uh, the, the work stream was actually led by the Securities Commission of Malaysia and the Capital Markets Regulator for Argentina, um, who, when this, was, this work was commenced, uh, Malaysia was the chair of the GEM committee and Argentina was one of the vice chairs. I think the work that they've been able to drive and I think there was a, a, a working group um, that was engaging in this process. And particularly from the African continent, um, we saw excellent contribution from Morocco, who really have been, um, were not only the convening uh, body for the signing of the Marrakesh Pledge, but then followed up on that uh, by, uh, I think, being one of the global leaders, even in terms of solar financing, um, and very working with their government to accelerate um, the number of green issuances they've had in their market. I've really helped us as a jurisdiction have some kind of a benchmark to work with, understanding some of the continental realities, how you can translate that, that into solutions. 
I think we've also seen um, very positive strides, for example, by Nigeria, who put out um, the first verified sovereign green bond in the world. Um, and once again, really setting down a, a clear indicator as to what's possible when you have a clear policy direction um, and uh, government support for the execution of um, these initiatives. But ultimately, we'll need to keep working and building a track record um, for the deepening of these markets. From the investor side, uh, when you look at the recent uh, McKinsey survey, uh, the beginning of uh, 2019, they confirmed that currently 25% of global assets under management are looking for sustainable or principle-based investments. So there's definitely um, uh, very large pools of capital looking to be deployed. So the challenge now is the ability of different jurisdictions to create um, the supply to meet that growing demand. Paul, this is all very positive and encouraging to hear. One thing that I think our listeners would be interested in is what you think is the or the number of greatest obstacles facing the green bond market and green finance for both Kenya and on the international stage? I think on the international stage, as I mentioned earlier, um, as long as we have um, strong and very vocal climate change deniers, it really does result in a lot of distraction from um, a concerted and coordinated approach to addressing the problem. But at the same time, when you look at just how passionate climate change believers are, um, we, we seem to generate new standards by the day. As long as there isn't some kind of global guidelines on how we should converge on uh, green finance, um, you will have slight variations that really do make the overall flow of capital into green financing much harder because uh, standards are slightly different in each jurisdiction, making deployment of capital that much harder. Um, so if we're able to uh, start taking steps towards setting down guidelines on convergence, that will overcome, I think, one of the most significant barriers. And I, I genuinely believe that the work that the IOSCO GEM Committee is about to publish is really the first step in that critical direction. Picking up on the theme of how regulators and supervisors can really help in this space, for example, what you had described with respect to the GEM Committee, can you describe additional ways that regulators and supervisors can encourage proper governance of green finance investments and initiatives? And how have you succeeded in this regard in Kenya? Not to drone on about the, the work um, that the Growth and Emerging Markets Committee has done, but that is actually the fundamental focus of the 10 recommendations that have been made that are really trying to guide regulatory agencies into understanding what role they're to play and um, how they can create a conducive environment. That cuts across, um, for example, making clear recommendations around ESG disclosure standards and where there are disclosure standards, making sure they're consistent and they're enforced. As you're working with industry and other stakeholders around building 
um, guidelines for your country, ensuring that you have appropriate um, engagement and benchmarking with existing standards, both at a regional and at a global level, so that we can work towards minimizing the differentiation of standards um, to allow for easier access and participation by investors who operate uh, across borders. And it is also looking at, um, think critically, the work that needs to be done around stakeholder awareness, engagement, and education. That it's only through those processes that we can build really that critical mass of active participants, both on the demand and supply side. What we've done in Kenya um, was one, put in place a new code of corporate governance that uh, provides clear guidance um, to issuers around how they should approach ESG matters, um, introduced both mandatory and uh, non-prescriptive provisions around what factors they should be disclosing. We've also developed um, at regulator level a evaluation tool so that we're able to really scorecard the different issuers around how they're complying with the different standards and the quality of the explanations they're giving as to how they're applying those governance standards. I think for a long time, corporate governance best practice uh, was associated with the concept of apply or explain. And there, it seemed to create a bit of space on uh, very subjective explanations as to why something is not being applied. So what we've introduced is an apply and explain um, regime that then also sets out guidance principles as to what is the expected standard. So if you're going to explain why you're not applying it, you also need to give sufficient uh, detail and evidence as to how what you are putting in place is, um, as it were, equivalent or commensurate with the principles that have been laid down. In order to also empower uh, the demand side, we have uh, put in place a stewardship code, which really empowers institutional investors, being the owners and managers of capital, to be able to really take into account factors around um, ESG in the manner in which they deploy their capital, they make their investment decisions, and um, to encourage them to also directly engage the management of their investee entities around how they're addressing sustainability issues. We hope that overall then creates really a much more robust environment for consistency and transparency in the way uh, this information is being disclosed so that we can it can support comparability in the long term. When we were speaking earlier, there were some references to the concept of blended finance. And this is referred to quite often nowadays in this space. Can you quickly explain to our listeners what blended finance is and why is it important? Uh, blended finance is... 
looking at the role of traditional uh, development finance and how it can be better linked to or used to crowd in uh, now private sector um, investment into relevant projects. I think we've seen a growing trend um, for donors to be able to show impact in the way they're deploying their funds and um, in some instances to be able to evidence a return on their investment. So where they're able to use their uh, development financing initiatives to uh, put in place uh, commercially viable or socially impactful uh, projects that can then attract larger scale private sector funding. You basically unlock significantly larger pools of capital to achieve uh, the ends that are being set down. So as a final question, and as we wrap up this podcast, Paul, what would you say is the most important takeaway for emerging market countries from a financial stability and regulation or supervision perspective in this space? The key would be the recognition that um, the introduction of green finance does significantly um, uh, call for deeper and more detailed level of disclosure. And in terms of underlying mandates around investor protection, uh, market order and market stability, the improved quality of disclosure can only help to better execute um, on those regulatory mandates. The second takeaway I would see is really around, as emerging markets, there needs to be a clear recognition that those jurisdictions that are likely to uh, suffer the greatest consequences of climate change do need to be the most proactive in identifying appropriate market-based funding solutions to help put in place um, mitigation measures. Thank you very much, Paul. I really wish we had more time to discuss these topics. But even in the short time that we have spent together, I'm taking away three things. First, regulators and supervisors around the world have a key role to play in developing and developed markets. Second, pragmatic regulation and supervision appears to be an approach that can really work well in this space. And third, capital markets will continue to play a key role in the advancement of sustainable development goals, both nationally and worldwide. So let me close by saying thank you again, Paul, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to provide us with your valuable insights. Toronto Centre is currently working on numerous podcasts regarding different initiatives in the capital market space. So please check back on the Toronto Centre website regularly. Mm-hmm.